should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. And it's my great pleasure to introduce Linda Hirschman today, the author of Sisters-in-Law. I heard about the idea. I thought that was just a great idea. You know, I'm, I'm sure that's why you're all here, to, to, to show these, the first two female Supreme Court justices and how they relate to each other and where they have in common, because from the from the outside, you think they have almost nothing in common at all. So thank you very much, Linda, for coming. Thank you for coming, too. Sisters-in-law is the story of the two most important women in the United States, history of the United States, so far. Um, the first female justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, Sandra Day O'Connor, and the second female justice of the United States Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It is the story of their public lives and their private lives and how they helped get legal equality for women and, as the subtitle says, change the world. We first meet them in the book in 1996 when they are at the pinnacle of their power. And I bet looking out at this room, that each and every one of you knows how to read. And therefore, you do not require me to read to you for you to digest the information in my book. But the very, very opening of the book captures so beautifully both their individual characters and the way they interacted together that if you will indulge me for just a moment, I will share with you a very small amount of my deathless prose. <laughs> By the time the nation celebrates the birth of its democracy each 4th of July, the nine justices of the Supreme Court have mostly left town. But before departing for their summer recess, 
they must first decide all the cases that they have heard that term, since the term started the previous October. Footnote, this very week there was an episode in that because the people who were trying to slow down the process of the Texas immigration case in the Supreme Court were trying to slow it down because if it gets fully briefed and argued this term, it will be decided by June and therefore that decision will be part of the election of 2016. So the phenomenon that I'm describing to you is real and matters right up until this very week. The hardest, as will probably be the case with this immigration decision also, the hardest, most controversial cases that the Supreme Court has to decide are almost without exception left to the very end. You may remember that the decisions about same-sex marriage were left to the very end of the term. And as in that very dramatic June, let's see, is it two years ago now, um, as the days for decision tick away in late June, the tension in the courtroom is as hot and heavy as the Washington summer Air. On the morning of June 26, 1996, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the second woman appointed to the High Court since its founding, slipped through the red velvet curtain behind the bench and took her seat at the end. Five places along the majestic curved bench sat Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, or the Fwatsuk, as she slyly called herself. When she found out that the Supreme Court called itself the SCOTUS, she started calling herself the Fwatsuk. Each woman justice sported an ornamental white collar on their somber black robes, but otherwise there was nothing particularly to link them to each other any more than to link any, either one of them to any of the other justices sitting on the court. On that day, however, the public got a rare glimpse at the ties that bound the two most powerful women in the land. Speaking from the depths of her high-backed chair that towered over her tiny frame, Justice Ginsburg delivered the decision of the court in United States versus Virginia, which is not a reenactment of the Civil War, but rather was the decision from that morning in June of 1996, Virginia's state-run Virginia Military Institute, which had trained young men since before the Civil War, would have to take females into its ranks. The Constitution of the United States, which required the equal protection of the law for all people, including women, demanded it. Few people listening knew that Ginsburg got to speak for the court that morning because her sister-in-law, O'Connor, had decided that she should. After the justices meet, met, and they met in conference, and voted to order VMI to admit women. It is customary in the court for the chief justice, if he is in the majority, or the senior justice in the majority, to assign the opinion. And he assigned it to Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the Supreme Court. But she would not take it. She knew who had labored as a Supreme Court lawyer at the American Civil Liberties Union from 1970 to 1980, 
to get the court to call women equal. And now the formal job was done. This should be Ruth's, she said. On decision day, justices do not read their entire opinions, to, which often go for scores of pages, any more than I'm going to read you my entire book, so rest easy. Um, so they read a summary of their decision, and they get to decide what part of the decision they include and what they read aloud, and it's a moment, right? It's a work of political theater, the reading aloud of opinions in these very important cases. That morning, Ginsburg chose to include in her summary reading a reference to Justice O'Connor's 1982 opinion in Hogan versus Mississippi, a decision that, uh, where O'Connor provided the critical fifth vote and wrote the opinion right after she came on the court. O'Connor's opinion for the closely divided court in Hogan, Ginsburg reminded her listeners that morning, had laid down the rule that states may not close entrance gates based on fixed notions concerning the roles and abilities of males and females. And then Ginsburg, the legendarily undemonstrative justice, paused. And lifting her eyes from her text, she thought of the legacy that the two of them were building together. And she nodded at Justice O'Connor and resumed reading the opinion. It's a great story. It's a great story. It's not that I'm so great, which is an open question. <laughs> it's that this is such a great story. And people ask me, they say, how did you come to write it? How could you not write it? I found out that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had not been the subject of anything resembling a proper biography four years ago, long before she was ever reproduced on any Tumblr anything. No book had been written about her life. There was, it turns, and this is very mystifying, right, because she was already really, really important. In fact, there's an argument that the work she did from 70 to 80 while she was in the ACLU is more important even than what she has accomplished on the bench. So I knew she was major. It turns out there is an authorized biography that has been being written by a professor somewhere, and she's been working on it since the invention of movable type in 1485. <laughs> so I figured that was not going to be a problem for me, right? Um, so you ask yourself, why are we so interested in Ruth Bader Ginsburg? And the answer is not because she is a justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, because if that were sufficient, then we would all be deeply immersed in works about Potter Stewart. But we're not. She matters because she changed the world. She changed the world for women. And if you're thinking about justices who changed the world for women, you cannot omit Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the Supreme Court of the United States. That would be goofy, right? To just brush right past the first one. And one of the interesting things that I learned in the course of doing the research for this book is that many of the cases that established formal legal equality for women at the Supreme Court level were decided between 1981, when O'Connor went on the court, and before 1993, when Ginsburg went on the court. So these critical decisions for the story I really want to tell, which is, of course, the movement story, Right? Those critical decisions were made when O'Connor sat alone. 
O'Connor sat alone. She, I mean, she wasn't alone. She had the guys, right? But she was the only woman. O'Connor was the only woman when the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that sexual harassment was a violation of the Civil Rights Act, not a trivial moment in women's history. O'Connor was alone on the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court voted, and when she played one of the, was one of the crucial swing votes, um, to not reverse Roe v. Wade. Now, Casey versus Planned Parenthood is not my favorite case in the uh, you know, universe of Supreme Court decisions, but they didn't reverse Roe v. Wade. Important things happened for women's equality when O'Connor sat alone. So it seemed to me that it was really important to write about them both if I was going to get a complete history of how these two very powerful women changed the world. The icing on the cake is that their stories are, have a wonderful structure, right? They came into a hostile world, okay? O'Connor graduates from law school, she can't get a job, local firm Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher says they'll make her a secretary. They came into a hostile world. They changed that world. They then lived in the changed world that they had helped to alter and using their new purchase in a different world or different society made more change. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is doing it still. So it makes a lovely structure to tell the story. The other wonderful thing that happened, which is maybe more meaningful to me because I'm a writer and you're always struggling to get your material under control, is that first one was important, and then the other was important, and then the first one was important. So there's an easy structure to the book because Ruth was incredibly important from 1970 to 1980 when she was at the ACLU, but O'Connor not so much. Then O'Connor goes on the Supreme Court, and she's really important for the next 12 years, and then Ginsburg comes back onto the Supreme Court, and they sit together, and then O'Connor leaves, and it's Ginsburg alone again. So there's a very lovely rhythm to the book that emerged in the course of struggling to help the reader not feel lost in a dual biography. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. So, consider the fact, uh, consider, consider the meta-narrative, what we have here. Republican, Democrat. Born and raised in a ranch in southeast Arizona. Born and raised in Flatbush, Brooklyn. A Goldwater girl an anti-Joseph McCarthy liberal, and most importantly, a blonde and a brunette. <laughs> I am, of course, neutral in that arena. 
Um, I'm not going to tell you all the cool things I found in the course of looking at every single piece of paper related to either one of them in the history of paper or interviewing everyone who had a pulse. But just consider the facts, right, because I want you to buy the book because I learned something very interesting in the course of this, my fifth book, which is when books by and about women sell, the publishers are more inclined to take chances on books by and or about women. So as part of my life of political activism, I believe that my self-interest and the movement's interest come together here. Um, I think it's so interesting. Publishers, very, you know, they're very market-driven. So <laughs> I, they're in business. I, it's a funny thing. They're in business. Right. So Sandra Day O'Connor was born famously in 1930 on a ranch in southeast Arizona. The nearest school was three hours away. And honest to God, unlike what our parents told us about how they grew up, there really wasn't any electricity or running water for some time during her childhood. For eight years, she was an only child. And I believe that this is very meaningful in terms of understanding her success as the first. She was alone on that ranch with her parents who treated her as the, a member of the adult society that was their little family. And there was no one else around to explain to her how, being a girl, she was inferior. There was just nobody there to tell her that. The ranch hands weren't going to say that. The cattle weren't going to say that. Her parents didn't say that. She went to school in El Paso at the age of six. But even then, she, her, her real soul is in that ranch, in that ranch society. Her sister was born when she was eight. So I believe that this is an important uh, lens on uh, Sandra Day O'Connor. When she was 15 years old, her father asked her to drive the ranch truck across the trackless land that was this isolated ranch in July and bring lunch to the um, uh, cattle hands who were rounding up the cattle in a remote part of the ranch. So she sets out in the ranch truck. This is not, you know, post street, right? This is no street. There's nothing. She's just bushwhacking across the ranch. It's July. I don't know how many of you have ever been to Arizona in July, but you can die out there. It's hot of heat or of thirst if anything goes wrong. And in fact, something went wrong. She got a flat tire. And right, very dangerous. And um, she had to change it. She could not get the lug nuts off. They were on so tight that this 15-year-old girl could not get them off. So she figured out to lower the truck to the ground, take the jack out, lower it back to the ground, and jump on the lug wrench with the full weight of her body and full force of her whole body rather than trying to use her arms. And she that way got the lug wrench to turn the lug nuts, and she changed the tire. And she drove to the place where the ranch hands were rounding up the cattle. And she pulled up, and her father was there with them. And he looked up at her and said, you're late. And she said, I had a flat tire. And he said, you should have left earlier. <laughs> and she learned a lesson from that encounter. She writes about it in her memoir of her childhood. No excuses. Now, I am not at all sure that it is the best training for a judge to learn that there can be no excuses. You just have to do what's expected of you 
it doesn't matter why you fail to do it. You either do it or you don't do it. Because judge's job, part of a judge's job, is to listen to people make excuses and decide when they're good excuses and when they're not good excuses, right? But I've spoken about the book to many gatherings of judges, and they nod vociferously when I suggest that. It was not maybe such a great training to be a judge, but it was great training to be the first. She was the first. She always performed whatever was expected of her, and she never made excuses. When I interviewed Justice John Paul Stevens, who sat with the two of my subjects the entire time, right? He was on the court in 75 when O'Connor arrived in 81, and he left in 2010 after Ginsburg had sat almost her whole time. So Stevens really goes the span of my subject. So I, I pressed him a little bit about O'Connor because his substantive decisions an, on important things like the death penalty and O'Connor's are different. So I wanted to see if I could get some dirt. I'm a journalist, after all. And what's more powerful than a justice of the Supreme Court of the United States? A journalist. <laughs> so, but here's what he said, Justice Stevens. He said, she never gave us any trouble at all. She never gave us any trouble at all. This is the description of the very successful first woman on the Supreme Court. So she's driving around with the flat tire and the heat and stuff and the thankless task on the one hand. And on the other hand, she has the opportunity to go to Stanford. So not being stupid, she goes to Stanford, right? And when she was at Stanford, she met a charismatic mentor who inspired her to go to law school. And she also met and married her husband, John O'Connor. And they ultimately had three children. They came, you know, legendarily when she got out of Stanford Law School, second or third in her class, right behind William Rehnquist. He went to the Supreme Court of the United States to clerk for Justice Jackson. And she could not get a job practicing law. And the story is oft told. And I always have lawyers from Gibson Dunn in my audience when I speak at law firm things. And they always raise their hand and remind me that Gibson Dunn has changed a lot since 1952. And I often share with them that I also have changed a lot since 1952. <laughs> and um, they legendarily offered her the opportunity to become a legal secretary. She got her first job by doing what minorities always do. She went to the government, OK? And she, uh, and, and it's very interesting to me that a lot of her jurisprudence is very anti-government, whereas it was the government that gave her the opportunity to practice law, which she very much wanted to do. She went to a public um, county attorney who, in California who had once hired a woman. And he said she could work for him if she would wait until, work for free until he got some more money and put her desk in with the secretary. So she did, she did both of those things. She was going to practice law. It didn't matter how many people told Sandra Day O'Connor that she was only fit to be a secretary. She never internalized it. She did not believe that story. This is extraordinary. It's 1952. So the O'Connors moved to Phoenix. And here's a critical fact. She rose to become the vice chairman of the Maricopa County Republican Party. Sandra Day O'Connor was a Republican activist from her first adult position. Both she, and, and when people, whenever I give this presentation or a presentation about the book, I presume San Francisco is a little bit like New York and DC, 
I always get in the Q&A, Bush v. Gore, how could she, how could she? Okay, I want to preempt that question by telling you she was a Republican from the day she started a public life in Phoenix in 1957. And uh, her Republican ties served her well. She rose through uh, Arizona state government and ultimately um, became an appeals court judge, which is the intermediate court in Arizona. Her break point came when the Mor teetotaling Mormon mayor of Phoenix, John Driggs, decided that his parties were boring. Okay, no alcohol, boring, not a real brilliant insight, but anyway, he, what was he going to do, right, to make his parties more interesting? And he decided, which is a really good idea, and I recommend it to you, to have a really interesting speaker come and talk to his friends at the party. And he knew, he, he's related, he was, he just died. I, I interviewed him at length, and then he died, so no other biographer is ever going to get this stuff. Um, he uh, was related to the man who was Chief Justice Warren Burger's chief of staff. So he, John Driggs calls his cousin John Cannon, his brother-in-law John Cannon in Washington, and says, would you like to come and talk at one of my parties? Are you ever going to be in Arizona? And John Cannon says, well, you know, the chief and I are going to be in Flagstaff in August for a judge's conference. So Driggs then takes it into his head that as long as the Chief Justice of the United States is going to be in Flagstaff, they should go on a houseboat trip on Lake Powell, which is something that Arizonans do. You know, it's really beautiful up there in the Red Rock country where the dams have made the various lakes. And, um, and one of them, the dam, has made Lake Powell, and people rent houseboats, and they, they motor around on Lake Powell and look at the beautiful scenery, and they jump into the cool waters and swim and, you know, have a wonderful time. So to his astonishment, the Chief Justice said he'd love to do that. Now John Driggs has a problem. He realizes he has absolutely nothing whatsoever to say to the Chief Justice of the United States. He's not even a lawyer. So... He calls the most interesting people he knows, Sandra Day O'Connor and John O'Connor. It's 1978 in Phoenix, so John Driggs does not call Judge Sandra Day O'Connor in her chambers to see if she wants to go on a vacation with the Chief Justice. He calls the man in the O'Connor family, John O'Connor, at his law firm to see if John and his wife, the judge, would like to come on a vacation with Warren Burker. And John O'Connor, not being stupid, says, how would we ever, right? So they, they go on a houseboat trip on Lake Powell. And every night, the people noticed that Sandra and the chief, as he humbly asked them to call him, uh, had disappeared. They had disappeared, and they found them in the remotest corner of the houseboat, chattering away like old friends. Sometimes they would be there until 1 and 2 in the morning. This relatively low-ranking Arizona State Court judge and the Chief Justice of the United States, she always knew how to get along with powerful men. In 1980, Ronald Reagan was worried that he would not get women's votes and therefore would not win the election. So he promised that the next opening on the Supreme Court, he would um, nominate a woman to take the next vacancy on the Supreme Court. Victory has a thousand fathers. People think that um, the Chief Justice put 
uh, Sandra Day O'Connor forward. People think that her old law school friend, William Rehnquist, was a big sponsor for her. People think it might have been Barry Goldwater, who was very important, and she and Barry Goldwater were tight the entire time that they were together on this earth. And um, I found some documentation that seemed to indicate that it was actually Reagan himself. Reagan, she had come to Reagan's attention when she was in the Arizona legislature. I don't think anyone has ever seen that before. So um, she goes to the Supreme Court of the United States. Meanwhile, back not at the ranch, in Brooklyn in 1933, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is born to a, uh, a new immigrant Jewish family, and her father very astutely decided he would go into the fur business just as the Great Depression landed on the United States. So they were very modest means. Since I live in New York, I took the subway and went to see uh, the Ginsburg ancestral home in Flatbush, which is really very frozen in time. This is not the trendy Brooklyn of the artisanal bakeries. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that uh, gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and, you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. See the modest, leafy neighborhood that she grew up in. Um, the sad thing about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's childhood is that her mother had cancer from the time she started high, from Ruth's high school years. So, and she died. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's mother 
Celia Amster Bader died of cancer the day before Ginsburg's high school graduation. She had, despite their modest means, put money away for her brilliant daughter to go to Cornell. And with some scholarship and stuff, she did. She went to Cornell, as did I. And I'll tell you a secret about Cornell in those years. They treat you like an equal. And once that happens to you, you are ruined for life. You will never accept being treated unequally, willingly, again. She had an inspirational mentor who inspired her to go to law school, and she met and married Mar the sainted Martin Ginsburg. Um, and they eventually had uh, two children. When uh, she followed him to Harvard Law School, and then he was a year ahead of her. So it, in her third year, he wanted to go to New York and go to work, and they had a young child, and he had been very sick. Not the child, Marty. So she wanted to go to New York with him and take her third year at Columbia, but Harvard would not give her her Harvard degree. So when I presented the book at Harvard, the faculty in the book presentation hastened to assure me that Harvard had rectified that oversight, retroactively giving Justice Ginsburg the degree that they had denied her in 1958. She went to Columbia. When the guys in her class at Columbia, who had gone to James Madison High School with her in Brooklyn, found out that Kiki Bader that was, was coming, they heaved a collective sigh because they knew that each one of their class ranks was now going to go down by one. And in fact, it did. She graduated first in her class at Columbia Law School. Her professors from Harvard and um, Columbia went to bat for her. I mean, they knew they had a precious jewel in her. She was a really good law student. And they went to bat for her and tried to get her a clerkship on the Supreme Court, but none of the Supreme Court justices would take a woman clerk. They could not get her a clerkship on the Second Circuit in New York, where they lived. None of the Second Circuit ju judges would take a woman clerk. She finally wound up clerking for a district court judge, which is the lowest federal court. And then she went to uh, Rutgers to teach. Her break point came, like the houseboat, her houseboat trip happened in 1970 when the girls in her class at Rutgers found out that the radicals at NYU were getting a course in women and the law, and they wanted one too. So they went to the two women professors on the faculty at Rutgers and asked each of them if they would be interested in teaching a class in women and the law. And Ginsburg said she would be interested. And the other woman professor is still teaching property someplace. <laughs> she did exactly what Ruth Bader Ginsburg would always do. She went to the library. Well, how does the law treat women? Answer, not well. So not only did she start teaching about it, but she organized her students to start litigating cases that she got from the local ACLU, first in New Jersey. She came to the attention of Arie Nyer, who was the head of the national ACLU in New York at this moment. And he had, uh, he was one of my best interviews. This is a very, very interesting and brilliant man. He decided that feminism in 1970 was going to be the racial civil rights movement of the 70s, and he wanted the ACLU to have a piece of the action. 
So he got them to start a women's rights project. And he was interviewing people for who should run it. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg applied. She was at that point being wooed by Columbia. So, I mean, she was a star in the academic world. So Columbia was wooing her away from Rutgers. And she also applied to run the ACLU Women's Rights Project. Nair asks for a writing sample. He takes one look at this fantastic writer's writing, and she gets hired immediately. <sighs> Here's my favorite part. In, uh, in nine years, from 1971 to 1980, when she went on to the D.C. Circuit herself, nine years at the ACLU, she had six victories and one defeat, establishing formal legal equality for women under the Equal Protection Clause. Of the six victories, she argued five of them, and she wrote the crucial brief in, the, in all of them, including the sixth one. So I call it in the book, Ruth's Five Great Cases, like Mozart's Five Great Operas and Jane Austen's Five Great Novels. And through the miracle of the internet, I am now getting a steady stream of communications from people out there arguing with me about whether Mozart did or did not have five great operas. <laughs> like, I was just trying to make it interesting. So it's not a book about opera. Uh, uh, certainly a, a worthy subject. Um, right, which is all another thing that I share with Ginsburg, a love of the opera. Um, even in the <coughs> somewhat contentious feminist movement, no one ever took a shot at RBG. One of my sources put it perfectly. She said, she could say the most outrageous things in that little, tiny, soft voice. My source said, if I knew how she got away with it, I would do it myself. <laughs> Jimmy Carter gets elected. There's pressure on him to put women in the federal courts. He appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the DC Circuit. Where she disappears from my story and the focus turns to Sandra Day O'Connor, who ascends to the Supreme Court of the United States. Ten years later, 12 years later, Jimmy, uh, Bill Clinton gets elected to the presidency and he appoints Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court of the United States. And so they went to the Supreme Court and changed the world. So here's the really interesting question, right? How did they do it? Hundreds of thousands of women went to college in the 50s and 60s, and hundreds, if not thousands, went to law school. But they did not go to the Supreme Court and change the world. So um, uh, recently, I was doing a book event with Jeffrey Tubin, who's a friend as well as a professional colleague. And he said to me, Linda, he said, first you wrote Victory, the Triumphant Gay Revolution, a very happy ending, story with a very happy ending. Now you're writing Sisters-in-Law, a story with a very happy ending. Where is the depressive Linda Hirschman that I knew all these years? <laughs> and the answer, I've now figured out my answer at Staircase Wit, right? My, my answer is that when you write about a successful social movement, people can learn how to make a successful social movement. If you write about a failed social movement, they can learn to avoid the mistakes, which is valuable, but I really think this is more fun, don't you? So how did they do it? I'm going to share my insights with you. They never believed the story of their own inferiority. There was no Cinderella 
syndrome, either in the Lazy Bee Ranch or in Flatbush, Brooklyn, the two bees, I call it, Lazy Bee in Brooklyn. They, they never thought the clock would strike midnight and they would be revealed as imposters. When in 1993, now it's 1993, so Clinton has put Ginsburg on the Supreme Court, and then he appoints her colleague from Columbia, Harriet Rabb, to be the general counsel of Health and Human Services. A big job. And when Rabb gets to Washington, Ginsburg gives a party for her to welcome her. So Rabb comes up to her hostess at the party and says, <laughs> Ruth, do you believe the two of us in such high positions? And Ruth Bader Ginsburg says, why certainly. She says, I have no trouble at all believing it. Believing they were entitled to rule, they treated their opponents and their male colleagues, both on the Legal Academy and in the Arizona State Legislature and in the United States Congress, they treated their opponents and colleagues as if they were all members of the same elite clubs. When Philip Kurland, who I had the misfortune of studying constitutional law with when I was in law school, um, opposed the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg simply said that she was astonished that a gentleman of such an extraordinary mind would fail to make the relevant connections. <laughs> they were all legal academics, and that's the game that legal academics play, making the relevant connections. And she, as a star in that world, was mystified by his inability to perform what people in their starry world were expected to do. When pressed to admit that they were inferior, they took offense. There's a legendary story about Dean Erwin Griswold of Harvard having a dinner of all the women in each class, including Ginsburg's class. And when they were sitting at dinner, he would go around the room and ask each of them what they thought they were doing taking up the place of a man. And she gave, Ruth gave an obsequious answer at the time, which she now says she's embarrassed about. Um, starting right about the start of the women's movement, however, 10 years later, she started telling that story all over town. She told that story on Dean Griswold so often that he finally wrote a letter to the student newspaper at the law school saying that it had really all been a joke. <laughs> right, only kidding, right? Only kidding, right. Um, once they took offense, they held a grudge. Ginsburg did not talk back to Dean Griswold in 1956. But when the chance for payback came along, she grabbed it. When O'Connor came to the Supreme Court in 1981, Justice Brennan wrote a very personal, over-the-top, scathing dissent to one of her decisions. And there, she never said a word about it. But thereafter, Brennan, who was legendary for his ability to walk the halls and um, sweet-talk his conservative brethren into voting with him, getting to five, as Brennan put it. He was really good at that. Somehow never could get through to Sandra Day O'Connor. He called that dissent the worst mistake I ever made. When they could not get even, they followed the advice that Ruth Bader Ginsburg got from her mother-in-law on her wedding night. Mrs. Ginsburg, Marty's mother, gave her daughter-in-law a wedding gift of a pair of earplugs. <laughs> Sometimes, Mrs. Ginsburg said, 
It pays to be a little deaf. <laughs> Unique as they were, and extraordinary as this degree of self-discipline was, I have a brace, an imaginary bracelet that says WWRBGD, what would Ruth Bader Ginsburg do? So when I'm tempted to act out immediately, I just look at that imaginary bracelet and say, they'd wait until the right moment. Extraordinarily disciplined women. Everybody agrees with that. Everything I've said about them applies to both of them. The little one, the big one, the blonde one, the brunette one, the Jewish one, the Christian one, the Republican one, the Democratic one, the East Coast, the Left Coast, it doesn't matter. These character traits were present in both of them. Most important of all, they did not think they were the only ones who deserved to rise. When O'Connor got the news that Ronald Reagan had nominated her to be a Supreme Court justice, she was worried. Why was she worried? She was worried, she said, because it was okay to be the first, but she did not want to be the last. It's so important that women hear that message even now. And they were fabulous and could easily have said, oh God, I'm so brilliant, I'm so beautiful, I'm so charismatic, I'm so clever with people, I deserve to be here, but the other women, not so much. But they never fell into that trap, neither one of them. Barriers did not stop them. Mockery did not phase them. When Ginsburg was nominated to the Supreme Court of the United States in 1993, one of her classmates from the Harvard Law School was talking about her to his Rotary Club. Okay, so a thought experiment. You went to Harvard, she went to Harvard. It's 25 years later or whatever. She's going to the Supreme Court of the United States, you're talking to your Rotary Club. I just want you to think about how that made him feel. So, he shared with his fellow Rotarians that the guys in the class at Harvard used to call Ginsburg by her nickname, Bitch. Mm -hmm. And somebody wrote it down and sent it to her. So she gets a fax, it allegedly was, telling the story of how her classmate was talking about her during her uh, confirmation period. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Well, says Ginsburg, looking back on her journey from the derisive Harvard Law School scene to the highest court in the land, better bitch than mouse. Thank you. I'd like to remind everyone that they're listening to Linda Hirschman speak on Sisters-in-Law, a book about Justice Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the first two justices who are female on the Supreme Court. So, next question. Um, 
would you comment on would you comment on the um, I guess you call it the pressure on uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg to retire before the Obama presidency is up so that hopefully he could appoint someone else before he leaves office. Okay, so I'm Jewish. I'll ask, answer a question with a question. Okay. How likely, right, how likely do you think it is that the United States Senate would confirm anyone that remotely resembled Ruth Bader Ginsburg for that vacancy now? Zero. I'm going with zero. Okay. The time for her to resign was before the Senate changed hands in 2014, and I actually believe there might have been a filibuster even then. So um, two things are true about Ginsburg. She is completely compass mentis. I just saw her two years ago at the New York Historical Society, and she was reciting whole passages of the Constitution by heart, right, from memory for the audience. And I just saw her last year um, going into great depth at the pros and cons of the marriage of Figaro versus Don Giovanni as the greatest opera and reciting the plot of Il Trovatore, which I defy most people on this earth to actually do. <laughs> so she's fine. She loves her work. What, Marty died in 2010. And a year after Marty died, uh, she, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote voluminous letters to her favorite client, Stephen Weisenfeld. And I got those letters for the book. And in a book that she wrote to Weisenfeld a year after Marty died, obviously responding to Weisenfeld inquiring about how she was doing, she says, I, get th I got through this hard year thanks to the great job that Marty got me. So work was her salvation. And I don't think she's about to go sit in the Watergate. Would you comment on the synchronicity after being appointed by President Clinton if uh, Ginsburg would retire under, during the term of the second President Clinton? So it's probably not allowed to say from your mouth to God's ears or anything <laughs> like that, right? Um, you know, it's so interesting. Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually thinks that men and women are the same. She does. And many of her cases were brought for male plaintiffs. She thinks that the goal is a full human life and that in order for people to have a full human life, men have to participate in the private world and women in the public world. So I don't know that she would see that as synchronicity. but. I do think she's hoping that there will be a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate. She has said as much in public, so I'm not just. It's a good question. I love it when I get questions I haven't had before. <laughs> Here comes another one. Talking about opera, do you have any sense of the friendship, which we understand exists, between Justice Ginsburg and the I know I'm going to have quotes around this, the revered Justice uh, Scalia. So I think I know something about the friendship between Ginsburg and Scalia. I interviewed some of their colleagues who sat with them on the DC circuit before it was a famous friendship, right? And they were friends then. And um, one of their colleagues told me that when the judges went on trips, 
you know, junkets, the judges go on junkets all the time, um, that uh, Scalia played the role in their outings that Marty Ginsburg played in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's private life in that he was sociable and charming and funny, and she's a little interdirected. So Scalia did the social labor for Ginsburg in the public world the way Marty legendarily did it in the private world. So I think that's a piece of information that's I found in the book that's not widely known. Um, they correct each other's drafts. They have a common interest in language and, um, and grammar and syntax and um, proper writing. So they share that um, as well. Uh, she's deep. They are both deep and complicated people. And I think that um, those, those facts, she's capable of great friendship and great love. I saw a lot of her correspondence. And people reveal themselves in their letters in ways that you don't see most other ways. So it was wonderful to have all those letters. And um, she's a very affectionate, underneath that shy exterior is a very affectionate person. One year she took all of her clerks that had married one another. Right? So there's like seven couples or something where the clerks actually, well, you know, it's the workplace. They're, they're young. Uh, to a dinner on Valentine's Day. And when they got to, at a very fancy Asian restaurant in DC. And uh, when they got to the end, their fortune cookies each held a love poem inside. Right, so she's a person, and I think she's friends with Scalia. He makes her laugh, they share a love of opera, they share a love of fine writing. They share a love of family. They're each very good family people. Speaking of family, how did she manage, speaking of family, how did uh, Justice Ginsburg manage raising her children while she had such an active career, as well as her husband's? And she worked every day of her life. Um, okay. So I'll just share this with you. If Marty Ginsburg comes back from heaven, he's mine. Okay, I just, I just want to stake my claim right now. Um, he was, from the beginning of their relationship, she was 17 when she dated him, um, completely egalitarian and supportive of her brilliance and her ability. One, it without a hiccup, for all the years that they were married. Two, he was a wonderful earner. So if you, wait, this is sort of not so commonly known, right? Like Marty, she was the richest justice on the Supreme Court by far, right? That's Marty. He was an incredibly brilliant tax lawyer. And so he made all this money and they had all this help. Two, three, he not only brought the bacon home, he fried it up, just like they always say women are supposed to do, right? Martin Ginsburg did this. Early in their marriage, he realized that she didn't care much about food and didn't want to, you know, didn't want to be bothered cooking. So the food was horrible. And he was a chemistry major, I believe, at Cornell, decided he would learn how to cook. And he became such a great chef that when he died, the Supreme Court Publication Society published a cookbook in his honor called Supreme Chef. And I, of course, bought it as I was desperate for material. 
And um, although I've never made anything, Jeff Tubin tells me that the bread recipe has 68 steps in it, and only a tax lawyer could really figure out. <laughs> I, but the cookbook is deliciously adorable, pun intended, because he, um, he accompanies the recipes with his commentary about not setting the kitchen on fire and stuff, and it's very humorous. So he was just the ideal husband. He was a perfect husband. Nothing, no one has ever said that about a tax lawyer before. <laughs> Would you care to comment on uh, Justice O'Connor's thinking about her role in Bush v. Gore? So I have an exp I mean, in, in fairness, I have to say something about that in the book because by virtue of casting one of the five votes in Bush v. Gore and cutting off the challenge, the outcome of which we will never know, and then retiring from the court in 2005 and handing her seat to George W. Bush to fill by those two acts, she has an effect on women's equality. And what happened is when she left and was replaced by Samuel Alito, it made Anthony Kennedy the crucial swing vote. So that much discussed subject about how could she, how could she, which I would normally have ignored, is indirectly in my wheelhouse. I had to say something about it because it really hurt women, what she did. And I believe I have an explanation. As to her position on it, she's Edith Piaf. Do you remember Je ne regret rien? That's Sandra Day O'Connor. She never looked back. You see it constantly in all of the stories that I have gathered, the people that knew her told me this repeatedly, and there's a video of her discussing her breast cancer treatment in which she's very courageously talking about it so other women will take courage from her example and so forth. And she says, so I didn't know the doctors weren't going to just tell you what to do and now they're asking me what I should do, she said in that Sandra Day O'Connor way. And, um, and she said, so? I just did what I do at the court. I gathered up all the facts, I made up my mind, and I never looked back. It's time for one or two more questions. Uh, when you were discussing Justice Ginsburg's time with the ACLU, I think you mentioned that she won six cases and she lost one, Would you or Five yeah. cases. Yeah. Would, you, would you tell us about the one she lost? Oh, Con v. Shevin. Oh, God. Con v. Shevin. Okay. This is actually a cool story. So Con v. Shevin comes just as she's doing it, right? So first she wins a case with very unthreatening facts, right? Could the state of Idaho prefer men over women with the same relationship to the decedent in administering a decedent's estate? I'm telling you, this affected exactly six people in the country, right? So she finally gets the Supreme Court to say that the 14th Amendment applies to women in this very unthreatening fact pattern. Great movement lawyer, Thorgood Marshall of the women's movement. Get your nose in the tent, right, with a really small case. She wins the next case, Frontiero versus Richardson, which is a little more ambitious. And she almost got the court to say that sex was like race, which was her goal. She came one vote of getting that in Frontiero. The third case that comes along is Melvin Kahn, expletive deletive Melvin Kahn. He is a widower in Florida. And in Florida, widows got a tiny little tax break on their property taxes, and widowers did not. 
So he says, hey, you know, discriminates against men, right? And uh, I want to challenge under Ruth Bader Ginsburg's precedence the Florida tax break for widows' uh, property taxes. And the Supreme Court takes a look at this and says, we're not doing that, or some equally principled decision, right? It's like, we're not doing that. Convy Chevin was inconsistent with the two cases that Ginsburg, the two bricks that Ginsburg had already laid, and she was very unhappy. She was unhappy that that case got to the Supreme Court. And it came from the ACLU, which made her even more unhappy because that's her own organization. She's supposed to be controlling this. So she's now dealing with a negative precedent. And what the Supreme Court does in a situation like that, they've got two cases that are inconsistent, Ruth's second victory and Ruth's first loss. They're inconsistent. Now there comes the next case, Weisenberger versus Weisenfeld, right? That's the next case. And the court has to decide, are they going to follow the logic of Khan, the loss, or are they going to follow the logic of Frontiero, the win? And she held her breath. And she was driving somewhere and heard on the radio that the Supreme Court had decided it. She pulls off to the side of the road and goes to a payphone, you remember payphones, and calls Stephen Weisenfeld and says, have you heard what was the vote? It was unanimous. It was one of the few times that William Rehnquist voted for women's equality. Right, so the court, the Convy Shevin is what we lawyers call an outlier, right? It just sits out there, not followed, not officially overruled. That's a good question. I never get to talk about Convy Shevin. That's a good answer about outliers. So we'd like to thank uh, Linda very much for coming and sharing the stories. It's really great. So ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 113th year of enlightened discussion. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. to the Michelle Miao Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.